Hi, I'm Liam Hooper. And I'm Peterson Toscano. Together, we co-host the Bible Bash podcast. The Bible Bash podcast is a monthly podcast where Peterson, a quirky queer Quaker and Northern Belle, and Liam, a trans Bible scholar and Southern gentleman, get together to examine biblical texts, looking for the characters and situations you don't often hear about. Each month, we look into a different ancient story. We're curious to find insights into our own queer lives. We discuss these and share our findings with you. You can find the Bible Bash podcast on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts. New episodes come out at the end of each month. Bible Bash podcast is part of the Rock Candy Network. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and this is a Rock Candy podcast. For more shows like this one, go to rockcandyrecordings.com. All right. Well, before I get started, I have a couple of pieces of housekeeping. First, I am incredibly happy to announce a new Rock Candy podcast, joining the Rock Candy family. The podcast is called Bible Bash. It is with Peterson Toscano, who is a queer Quaker actor and activist and biblical scholar, and Liam Hooper, who is a trans biblical scholar. And in each episode, they unpack a specific biblical passage or story from a trans queer perspective. It is a really, really, really awesome show. I am so incredibly excited to have them on the network. So please go check them out. They are on all of your favorite podcast apps. Just look up Bible Bash. I will also provide a link in the description. You can also find them on our on our website at rockcandyrecordings.com. Also, this show is only possible with your support. I already work full time. I am hustling. I am an impoverished millennial and I need your help. So if you love this show, if you find yourself looking forward to it, every Monday. And if you want to see me continue to bring interesting conversations to the world, then please go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long and you will get some extra content. You will get the House of Heretics podcast in which my co-host Justin and I talk about everything from, uh, you know, Jesus to Christian theology to Eastern spirituality to Satanism. So go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long to support this show and make sure it has a long life. Also, we are continuing to grow the rock candy podcast network my colleague matt langston and i from the band 117 we are looking for new creators if you have a an idea for a show or you are working on one please go to stephenbradfordlong.com and send me your pitch i would love to hear your idea and maybe we can produce it for you in return for joining the network you get our entire backlog of music you will get uh, community support from a uh, community of creators to promote your work and uh, it's it's really awesome and if you have a show I, I hope you consider joining okay well with all of that finally out of the way I am delighted to welcome Ben Burgess to the show he is the author of the upcoming book give them an argument coming out May 31st from zero books Ben Burgess, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, so you are kind of making the rounds on on leftist YouTube and leftist Twitter. So, you know, you, I've seen you quite a bit on Michael Brooks and on The Surfs and Zero Books and all of those great, great channels. So tell us some about what you do, who you are and, and what you do. Okay. Uh, so I'm a philosophy instructor at uh, Rutgers in New Jersey, which means that, among other things, I teach logic classes, which both symbolic logic at different levels and also, well, what we call logic, reasoning, and persuasion at Rutgers, which might be called like critical thinking or critical reasoning in other places, which is the kind of informal logic class where you learn about 
logical fallacies, for example, which is really much closer to the main subject matter of the book, which is a few things, right? It's a it's a polemic uh, to get people, you know, my comrades on the left to make more explicit arguments for our positions and to spend more time talking about exactly what's wrong with right-wing arguments instead of just sort of rolling our eyes or condemning people mm. uh, who make them. And it's also an attempt at something like a informal logic textbook oriented towards you know leftists uh socialists so you know it's it's a lot of it takes the form of talking about arguments made by libertarians or by you know ben shapiro or people like that Mm. and you know breaking down what's wrong with them as a way of teaching people different kinds of you know ways that arguments can go wrong and you know within i hope how to do better yeah that's awesome i you know i feel like i am your target audience (laughs) i feel like you know i'm on the left but you know i was also like in the conspiracy world for a really long time you know not the not the greatest critical thinker right here so but one thing that i've noticed on the left and this is something that that does really frustrate me is this tendency to just say how dare you and that's where it ends. And so when when Jordan Peterson or Ben Shapiro or or someone says something really, really just stupid and awful and hateful, a lot of us on the left just kind of roll our eyes and say, how fucking dare you? Or we get really angry and really appeal to more to, to a kind of a, a sense of morality and, and violating a sense of morality rather than emphasizing why it is objectively wrong. And and this is a problem that I've noticed. And I'm and, and you know, this is one reason why I uh, Doug Lane from Zero Books got on my radar because his videos on Jordan Peterson, uh, yeah. he was he was like one of the first ones I encountered who was who was saying more than just how dare you? Why do you think on the left there is this knee-jerk appeal to just saying how dare you instead of engaging in the argument why do you think that is yeah so i think some of it is that people really associate argument with debate uh which i think is is kind of a mistake not that you know not that i don't think that we should be debating people i think there's some i think that there's some uh usefulness to that exercise in some contexts but like a debate is a certain kind of public spectacle and where you know it's a much narrower thing than you know reasoning making arguments in general and i think a lot of people think uh they sort of associate the rules of logic or you know a lot of logical fallacies all that stuff with they sort of think of them as like they're like the you know marquee of queensbury rules for like you know conducted gentlemanly debates or something like that <laughs> you know? and then people have this understandable reaction you know it's like well you know screw that right why should I, you know these are rules for being nice to people and i don't want to be nice to them they're horrible bigots yeah right? exactly uh which is you know which if that were really what they all they were then i would agree right like i think a lot of these people are pretty terrible yeah right? and, you know that, pieces of uh, shit yeah yeah no question right so but so the reason that i think that it's important to to get this stuff right is one they're not the marquee of queensbury rules for gentlemen debate right they're uh, <laughs> you know what they are are ways of reasoning better right, right. And so like the, the you should care about them because the goal of reasoning isn't to like crush or destroy people who don't agree with you the goal of reasoning is to try to figure out what's true absolutely and then as far as why i think that it's important that we not just you know roll our eyes or you know or morally condemn them not that you know look anybody who knows me is aware that i'm not like opposed on principle to making fun of people right you know they have like that's that's i'm you know do that as much as anybody does absolutely Uh, it has and a place for sure. It definitely has a place. And God knows there are things that deserve to be morally condemned. Like, thank God for Chapo Trap House. Yes. And, and guys I, like them. Yeah. I, I am a big fan. But if, if our only reactions are are the chop, you know, the range of reactions you typically get on Chapo, that, you know, it's it's only mockery or moral condemnation, 
then I think that that's dangerous for a couple reasons, which is one, even if these people you're talking about, they are pieces of shit, right? You know, we're not trying to convince them, right? We know that that's not going to happen realistically, but there are a lot of convincible people who might be listening to them and you're going to lose them if you never get around to saying what's wrong with the argument, right? Like if all you do is no matter how good you are at making fun of them, if all you do is making fun of them or morally condemn them, then people who might be winnable are eventually going to get the understandable impression that you don't have a good response to their argument. Right. You know, that they, they must just be making such a, you know, such an overwhelmingly convincing case that, you know, that you just don't have one. And so you're going to lose people who you could win over. And then the other problem is that if the only, you know, weapons in our arsenal are mockery or moral condemnation, then when legitimate disagreements come up on the left about, you know, tactics, about strategy, about policy, you know, should we, you know, should we try to, you know, take over the Democratic Party or should we support a third party is the best way to close the racial wealth gap, mm-hmm. redistributive universal programs that'll help everybody, but it'll help minorities more. Or is it or should we support reparations, you know, like that kind of Adolf Reed versus Ta-Nehisi Coates kind of debate? Well, when these debates come up on the left, if those are the only tools in our arsenal, then that's inevitably what we're going to turn on each other. And that's incredibly ugly and, and alien alienating and you know i think a lot of people it's a it's very very ugly and and you know i move through so i'm gay uh in case you didn't catch in case you didn't catch that at the beginning (laughs) um and so i my introduction to the left was really through lgbtq circles and i am not dissing lgbtq communities whatsoever because they saved my life like i'm mm-hmm. i'm not dismissing that at all however that is what I, what you just described is what i encountered there a lot a lot of moral condemnation and then when dissonances arise within those communities within my community it just dissolves into absolute mayhem and i'm wondering if i'm wondering what you think of Angela Nagel's argument where she says that we on the left have gotten you know we we resort to kind of fragility or rage because we have we we have lost the we we take our positions for granted and we have lost the capacity to argue for them what do you think of that do you buy that I think there's some truth to that depending on what kind of positions we're talking about i think that probably on certain kinds of cultural issues it is it is probably true that that we just kind of take them for granted some of that's you know not bad right because what it comes out of is that there are certain cultural issues where, well, we've at least won enough battles to be maybe under the illusion that we won the war. Yeah. You know, because of a combination of, on the one hand, all of the the efforts of, you know, the kind of communities you're talking about or parallels, you know, for other groups that, you know, that, that have actually paid off over the decades. And also the fact that, you know, capitalism, like, you know, it's it's sort of very convenient sometimes to think that all the things that we don't like are always packaged together and, you know, and are, you know, like sort of come as a package deal, uh, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but that's, it's not so, right? Like, um, yeah. there, there is a, there is an extent to which just the sort of internal imperatives of capital actually, actually do, you know, break down certain kinds of uh, traditional barriers in ways that can have good good side effects right you know that they have a that like you know that there's a sort of you know hey you know like goldman sachs you know like doesn't really give a shit you know if you're gay or trans or whatever as long as you make the money right exactly you know? so, so uh it's, so like they could actually in certain contexts be very helpful in breaking some of that down so Because on a lot of those issues, I think the sort of activist efforts of the left have actually dovetailed to a certain extent with the imperatives of the larger society economically, that that means that we actually, you know, we haven't been swimming against the stream as much on some of those issues. And those those can seem like, yeah, we won the war. It's over. Right. You know, it's every every right. And we don't really have to think, think through the 
you know, the metaphysics and politics of gay marriage anymore. We can just kind of accept it and be okay with it. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And like, in some ways that's not a bad, you know, like, like, especially if we were as much there as people, as we sometimes lull ourselves into thinking, right. Then like, Mm. that would be possibly even a good thing. Right. I'm, I'm a philosophy guy. I like arguing about everything, but like, I, I do see like Slavoj Zizek's point when he says that it was better when we didn't have a debate about torture, right. You know, that they have, that you know yeah. we, we don't we don't have a debate about whether rape is okay that's oh the way god it should yes. be. You know? if <laughs> only if only sam harris had stayed a neuroscientist <laughs> and <laughs> and had not raised all of these debates about race and torture okay so since since we've brought up sam harris let's yeah. uh let's just go ahead and get into so your book is kind of an exploration in part an exploration of some of the bad arguments and yeah. uh, on the right and one of the things that i wanted to talk to you about was what are some of the bad arguments on the right and why and kind of help us walk through them and i know that the right is a huge huge umbrella but kind of on internet uh, on internet right-wing culture you know like shapiro and peterson everyone will will protest this but sam harris does have some kind of right-wing views right like like i I get that sam harris like has you know has some conventionally liberal positions on various issues or whatever but like that's not his function right nobody exactly nobody is going to sam harris to get their position on abortion you know like that's like the fact that he the fact that he (laughs) that is just like an interesting trivia point about him it, it's not about who he it, is politically or what he it, does. exactly what he's known for what sam harris is known for is bringing on these a lot of these right-wing guests like douglas murray and charles murray and giving them a platform i mean he is kind of single-handedly popular repopularized charles murray which, uh, which, which by the way uh there's a amazing uh so there's a book that just came out this year uh i think like at the rutgers Barnes and noble at like immediately win in the like 20% off rack or whatever you know because I think the, the cultural moment has kind of passed sure uh, but it was about the new atheists the uh, the four horsemen right Harris Hitchens uh, is it John Jones. Gray uh well it's a uh well what it is is it's the I don't remember who edited it but okay. the part of it is these uh transcripts from like a conversation between the four of them oh that's right it was and it was the forward was written by Stephen Fry and yeah yep, yes that's, that's right yes and I was like that's mo- so 10 years ago Jesus it's Christ. So that's that's when I was in college and I was so into that shit. Sure, yeah. Uh, well, you know, which is, yeah, which is really interesting, right? That like the way everything's realigned since then, right? That like uh, Harris has gone from being a new atheist for horsemen where like a lot of his fans, you know, the fans of those were people like you. And I mean, I assume back in college, you know, you already had fairly progressive views, right? You know, but I think a lot of, a lot of people were in that category and liked that. And it's so weird reading that thing now, because for one thing, there's this point where they're having this discussion about you know what would you do if if you if you just concluded something that you thought was like really morally you know dangerous but you know you thought it was true and there's a point where Hitchens just uses as an example uh like if you were to decide that you know it was actually true about the uh, the racial bell curve intelligence oh god you know and so out so like since I've read that I thought wow did that plant a little seed in Harris's head did that plant a little well okay so here's my thing with Harris I really think that his whole you know promotion of the bell curve okay and for for listeners who are just 100% lost and who are used to me just talking to queers and satanists i'm sorry i have to get you know of of you know the socialist rotation in here uh but if we're if you're completely lost i'm so sorry we'll be talking about cults and and satanists in the next episode but uh for those of you who are completely lost uh sam harris you know, really popular, quote unquote, public intellectual. Uh, I'm starting to hate everyone who has the title public intellectual, though. Like, Certainly uh, a douchebag red flag. Yes, huge douchebag. Like Andrew Sullivan. I would rather be fucking fisted by Andrew Sullivan than read another one of his, like, unself-critical 
pieces of bullshit. But anyway, all that aside, Sam Sam Harris <laughs> Sam Harris had on Charles Murray, who who you know basically wrote a book in the '90s called The Bell Curve, in which he says that the IQ differential that we see in the United States between the races, and it's true, we do see that IQ differential. However, there are very there are other very substantial, very reasonable explanations for why that is. But what Charles Murray does is he just comes in and says, well, it's obviously because of genetics and that black people are genetically predisposed on average to be less intelligent than white people. If I, I hope I'm, I hope I'm portraying that argument correctly. No, that's, um, what the, that's right. Like it, and that's the part everybody, uh, in fact, yeah, he does say that uh, he had his, his uh, co-author Edward Herdstein say that, but and that's the part everybody remembers, the larger thesis of the book, right? There's like a chapter on race, the larger thesis. Yeah, it's, it's really just one chapter, isn't it? Yeah, the larger thesis of the bell curve is that poor people in general are genetically inferior. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know. Uh-huh. Yeah. As a poor person myself, I am deeply offended because I live in intellectual genteel poverty. And... <laughs> no, uh, like fuck that and, shit, know, and, and, and I'm sure that Murray would have would have you know room to explain why you know uh-huh. you know you're a statistical anomaly, you know you're one of the good ones, you know. But uh, but yeah, it's 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 an absurd uh, thesis. I mean, I think that so. I mean, my suspicion is that this idea that there's this that there's this well defined kind of intelligence that's measured by IQ is kind of poorly conceptualized in the first place exactly you know that's like way back in like the 80s i think uh stephen jay gould had a book called the mismeasure of man exactly he was arguing that but you know even whatever you think about that issue the idea that what you're measuring you know is primarily something biologically innate rather than primarily about you know environment and you know um that you know what kind of like how much time, you know, you, you have in a day to, you know, to like, to, uh, to think and, you know, and like be creative and stuff like that, that, you know, even when we're talking about like IQ tests on, on young children, you know, like, I think that people who, you know, that like, whether your parents are, uh, you know, or like, at, like have time to like hang out at home and read to you and things like that, you know, like, I think, uh, I think make a huge difference there. And one of the things that Murray pulls out to try to show, oh, uh, it really is genetic right, in particular in the racial dimension, because he says that, well, people will try to say that, like, you know, poverty resulting from structural racism, you know, that that's the, that's the explanation. But it can't be that the America's history of oppression of black people is why uh, black IQ scores are lower on average, because uh, there's also this IQ data from Africa, and, you know, and the and the scores are lower there as well. And Nathan uh, Nathan Robinson in Current Affairs has this wonderful uh, like he's the best. Yeah, yeah. He uh, he blurred the book. I was really happy about that. But nice. He, uh, but yeah, he has this one of his typical kind of ten thousand word you know takedowns of uh, one of these people. Yeah. Uh, it was called Why Is Charles Murray So Odious? Uh, <laughs> yes, I read that. It's great. And in there, right, he points out that one, this IQ information from Africa is pretty scanty, right? You know, it's it's like a it's a very like the IQ test is not typically given in a lot of these places, so yes. like there just isn't very much information to go on. And also, how little do you have to know about history to say that, like, structural historical factors, you know, would, like, play no role there, right? Like, that they have it... That- I okay. Mean, that, that's yes. So, like, so this this actually gets to one of the most astonishing things about this whole thing with Harris, and you know, to to kind of back up and frame this whole thing, uh, if it sounds like we're just discussing a tempest in a teacup, you know, maybe this sounds like it is unimportant. Under you for for listeners who don't know who Sam Harris is or don't really understand the gravity of this. So Sam Harris has one of the most popular podcasts on the internet. It's called it's now called Making Sense. It was called Waking Up. Um, yeah, he changed it to Making Sense, and I honestly think he's kind of trying to rebrand. 
you know, yeah. I think he's he, I think he's kind of trying to to rebrand, but it is not working because he <laughs> he cannot help himself but just say idiotic, stupid bullshit. And so he is this incredibly popular figure who is popularizing people on the right and is contributing to this incredibly toxic environment while maintaining plausible deniability and while maintaining that he himself is on the left. And I and, you know, for more context for a figure like Sam Harris. Harris, I have an article on my website at stephenbradfordlong.com called My Complicated Feelings on Sam Harris, uh, where I talk about how Sam Harris, he, you know, he was really instrumental in helping me walk away from a theistic view of the world. But at the same time, he really did almost lead me down the path to to the right wing and to the alt-right. He was my gateway to the alt-right back in 2015 and 2016. And, and I talk through that process of how that happened. And it isn't just me. I think that there are a lot of, you know, it depends on what Sam Harris you are exposed to. It depends on which Sam Harris you focus on. If you focus on the Sam Harris who's, who teaches meditation, then you're fine. But if you focus on the Sam Harris who, if you listen to the Sam Harris who talks about how we should have a first strike against Muslims and how we should torture Muslims and how we should profile Muslims and how uh, and who just laughs along as as Douglas Murray mocks trans people and just all you know all kinds of awfulness then you can go down a very very dark path and I did and that's why I'm concerned about this you know like this isn't just anecdotal for me but you know with that whole thing with the bell curve I am convinced that it had everything to do with his ego because Charles Murray was um, blasted at some college. He was deplatformed at some college. He was shouted. Yeah, he, yeah, wherever. He was shouted down. He was shut down. And I'm pretty sure Sam Harris just had him on his show to, to be like, oh, look at us. We're so aggrieved. And I'm almost certain it had everything to do with validating Sam's wounded ego because people are are calling him a racist. Yeah, I mean, so, and really, honestly, I think that uh, that does go to how deeply counterproductive I think deplatforming is in like 99% of cases because... You know, yeah, I mean, Middlebury College is where Charles Murray um, had this experience. And I don't know about you, but I'd never even heard of that place. Yeah, you know, me before, too. Before <laughs> or like uh, before uh, before Brett Weinstein was kind of driven out slash left uh, Evergreen College, Evergreen State. Yeah, again, I'd never heard of this place either, right? Like, and if, and that's a perfect example, right? So uh, Brett Weinstein... Anybody who doesn't know who Sam Harris is certainly isn't going to know who he is, but like yeah. he's a, uh, but he is this, he's another one of these people in this kind of right wing group of, you know, public intellectuals. Uh, the intellectual dark web, which is the, is. the most <laughs> masturbatory self title it is it, 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 it is it is more masturbatory than the four horsemen of the apocalypse it is and, and, and it's, it's, it's just and it's one big circle jerk astonishing to you. Like, you know as i understand it right the dark web is you know stuff that doesn't show up in google searches so you could like buy drugs online and stuff like that yeah and child porn yeah right right uh whereas like <laughs> Not only do these guys show up in Google searches, they all get like loving profiles in the New York Times and they go on TV all the time. They're but- also so centrist. I mean, they're they're so not centrist. They're so like like establishment right wing. Yeah. There's, there's yeah, nothing yeah. new. There's nothing controversial. There's nothing like, like every single one of these guys. Well, or at least a couple of the main ones. All right. Not every single one of them, but like certainly some of the main guys, right? Ben Shapiro, Peterson. Sam Harris, you know, yeah. like they've been around in the public eye forever. You know, they just like all this is, is a rebranding exercise. Yeah. Uh, they get so much mileage out of the persecution narrative. Right? Yes. You know, that they like, you know, Brett Weinstein would like, you know, he up until a couple of years ago, he was just a biology teacher at this like little, you know, hippie-ish college nobody had ever heard of. Uh-huh. Uh and that's whatever, good for him. That's a good life. I have nothing, you know, like I, you know, full time job, health insurance, good for him, you know. But the fact that he's suddenly in the intellectual dark web and he sits, you know, and he has like, you know, he had a debate with Richard Dawkins and things like that. He only gets that kind of, you know, he has a Patreon where, 
you know, people, you know, people just give him like love donations all the time. You know, like it's this is this is something that only would have been possible because some student protesters went after him one time, right? Exactly. Otherwise, he's nobody and nothing. Exactly. Jordan Peterson managed to do this grift with apparently a, a purely hypothetical persecution that he's like a, based on a law that he just. Oh my God! Lying about a law. I don't think he consciously lied. I think he's just paranoid. I, I think he's just read too much Alexander Solzhenitsyn and is just terrified of, you know, I he reminds me, honestly, he reminds me of some other people I know who who just dive head first into studying these totalitarian regimes. And it became and they become like me when I was binging Breaking Bad. And suddenly, <laughs> as I was looking around, I was like, are you a meth dealer? Are you, are you a meth dealer? Like suddenly everyone, <laughs> everyone becomes framed in this dark, terrifying yeah. world. And I think it gets, I know people who've, who've just like dived head first into studying these totalitarian regimes and then they just can't get out of it. And they, and it traumatizes them. I think it, I think it like legitimately hacks their brain and traumatizes them. And that's, and I think it happened with Jordan Peterson too. So now he he hears you know Zier and Zim and whatever and and thinks the jack booted uh, <laughs> you know yeah, soldiers yeah. are going to come bursting into his house yeah. and, and it's amazing too that like he rose to prominence ranting and raving about you know Bill C sixteen which would which added uh, gender identity to candidate you know like their pre existing human rights law and the amazing thing about this is that that was a while ago. Right, Bill C sixteen has been on the books for a couple of years. Yeah. And my Canadian friends tell me that nobody has been sent to a gulag yet for misgendering anybody, right? That exactly. <laughs> it hasn't yeah, so. but that is the entire basis of Peterson's fame is this persecution complex. And it it's just stunning to me. It is absolutely mind-boggling to me. And and here's another thing that maybe you can explain to me that I'm just trying to wrap my head around with these guys. Okay, I have been shat on by people on the left. Like, yeah, I've said like I've said things on Twitter and the next thing I know people are crucifying me. That is zero excuse to suddenly cozy up to Stefan Molyneux or to Ben Shapiro and say, we are going to stand in solidarity because free speech, and we're going to be on a platform together and defend each other because of free speech. And I'm like, no, that's bullshit. The best way to defend free speech is to fight. The best way to defend free speech is to fight each other. Like that, I I do not understand this. I, I don't want to waste any breath defending someone else's freedom of speech. I want to defend free speech by practicing it. I do not get this. I don't understand. Like, like, yes, people on the left have been shitty to me. People on the left have, have just run me over multiple times because I've, I've done stupid stuff. That is no excuse for me to suddenly, you know, become Sargon of a cod. Uh, probably because you've done, uh, probably sometimes because you've done stupid stuff, and probably sometimes because you've said things that people stupidly misinterpreted. Exactly. Or, you know, like, like, like. There's some, you know, uh, yeah. Like, you know, I use Twitter too, but like, I'm under no illusions that it doesn't make all of us who use it a little bit dumber all the time. But um, oh god, it makes us all assholes too. It totally does. <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah. Like you would think that like so somebody like uh, like Dave Rubin who is I guess how do you describe him he's a talk show host kind of he has a uh, he has a kind of way of staring into the camera. And I was blinking. just going to say he has the most vacant stare <laughs> of anyone I've ever seen. He has the most <laughs> vacant eyes. He's those it's like, like baby like, blue uh, doll eyes. <laughs> Oh my God! Yeah, it's like a you know the Texan uh, at the end of uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, uh, just before Chief Bromden puts the pillow over his head because he wouldn't want to live that way. You know, absolutely. <laughs> That's um, <laughs> it's 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 just amazing. <laughs> like no, the lights are on, but nobody is there. But Dave Rubin, his whole thing, right? What he talks about constantly is you know how much he loves ideas and the free exchange of ideas. And you think, okay, so like. 
if that were true, why don't you have like, you know, Noam Chomsky on, you know, so exactly. like you, know, you, could, you could like really get into it. about or Zizek. The, yeah, Zizek, right? You know, about the ideas that you fundamentally disagree with, right? You know, you yeah, you would have like, instead of just talking all the time about the free exchange of ideas why don't you get out there and debate some ideas but he, he won't right like i mean even sargon the god who you mentioned a minute ago is has uh has gotten pretty gun shy about getting in the same room as uh, as people who he fundamentally disagrees with uh you know because it's he, embarrassing it's yeah because so, it's embarrassing to it him it is so right? embarrassing <laughs> The guys at the surfs, uh, Lance and Dave, they had uh, there was there was a point where where they'd like reached out to him that you know about doing something uh, you know with me, and he was like, oh, uh, I, I don't really know who he is. Why don't, why don't I just talk to you, Lance? And, and then they they were like, oh, okay, you know, here's the CV, you know, why don't you know here's some videos, why don't you look into it? Uh-huh. And then it's just like dead air, you know, <laughs> like there's no exactly, uh, you know? exactly, uh, and. You know, Dave Rubin uh, has uh, for years now, it's become like the biggest standing joke on left Twitter that uh, that Dave Rubin <laughs> yes. uh, refuses to have a conversation with Sam Cedar, you know, his former uh-huh. colleague. Yeah. Like, and the thing is, Sam Cedar is not anybody's idea of a flamethrower, right? Like he's he's like a he's you know, he's he's like this kind of smart nebishy jewish guy who like really likes social security he's a you know, like he's this. like a he's a suburban dad is what he reminds me yeah. of. he's like he's like when i go you know going over to your friend's house and and that suburban dad who just won't stop talking about socialism that is sam cedar <laughs> no, that's, that's, and i love him i love sam cedar no, but sam that, is fantastic and like but, he does and sam and like and you know look sam cedar is actually somebody who you know, walks the walk about free exchange of ideas. Yes, he does. Anytime there's like any internet libertarian who wants to talk to him, he'll like set aside an hour of his show, you know, that, you know, oh, I'm on, I'm on, uh, I'm on the phone today with, you know, Von Mises 69, who's, you know, going to tell me, you know, about the non <laughs> and, you know, and in those, in those debates, he does, uh, with libertarians, you know, he's, uh, you know, he never, you know, he never raises his voice, you know, yeah. he's, he's just, you know, like, he just sort of calmly, you know, like, points out problems with what they're saying, uh-huh. you know, uh, like, uh-huh. and so, and for like three years, Sam Cedar has been ignoring, uh, I think, except once somebody asked him in a Q&A and he kind of had to answer and he said it wasn't going to happen, but like, he has, uh, like, when he does people, like, I think I think when Dave Rubin went to Australia, there was somebody who had like a banner debate Sam Cedar, you know, like that. You know, he can't uh, he can't escape <laughs> from it even in Australia. Uh, so yeah, I mean these these guys clearly uh, are not interested uh, in in this kind of exchange of ideas. It's about posturing. Uh, they they like the branding exactly. of being about the free exchange of ideas, and it's the same thing, frankly when uh they talk all the time about logic right so uh that you know they'll use them like mantras you know logic and facts facts and logic logic facts and evidence uh <laughs> and you know a lot of times they have a vague idea of what they even mean when they say that mm-hmm. they, they say all kinds of things that like are just like textbook obvious examples of logical fallacies my favorite Example uh, is the one, well, on Sam Cedar's show, on the Majority Report, it was uh, Michael Brooks was hosting because it was a Thursday, but I was talking Uh, about I love him. I love Michael Brooks. Yep. Yeah, yeah big fan. You know, style, we, we were talking about this uh, the other, you know, the other day that there was this uh, New York Times profile of Ben Shapiro. It was called the Cool Kids Philosopher. Oh God, uh, which is embarrassing enough to start out with. And in <laughs> uh, and in the profile, they actually referred to him as uh, the destroyer of weak arguments. So you would think, right? Like, okay, you know, you see, like in a in a student paper, the phrase, you know, such and such is the destroyer of weak arguments. What do you do, right? You like underline in red pen and write off in the margins if you're going to make this claim. I'd really like to see an example, right? Uh, and the only, the one and only example given in that article of Shapiro, you know, destroying a weak argument is he's given a Q and A at a college campus because this is what he does. Like we're talking about, none of these guys want to play on their own level. Right. They have a they um, they're all 
deathly afraid of interacting with anybody, you know, who's who's older than, you know, about 23. Yeah, exactly. Well, because here's the thing, you know, the human brain isn't fully developed until you're about 25. And so, you know, it's really convenient to just go after people whose prefrontal cortex isn't fully cooked <laughs> yet. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and yeah, you know, and, and that's, and what, and you say something and they're not quite sure how to respond to it. And, uh, and they just splutter at you. Blah, no, you know, fuck and, you. And, and that could be clipped into something for YouTube. Ben Shapiro destroys another snowflake on college campus. Exactly. Uh, which, and so, yeah, so he's doing one of these Q and A's on college campus. Uh, and uh, this 22 uh, year old girl is challenging his position on trans rights. And, um, and he says, hey, how old are you? And she says, 22. And he says, well, could you just identify as being 60? Uh, and she kind of sputters for a second because like, she's like momentarily flustered. She isn't quite, quite sure what to say about a silly analogy. And then he kind of talks over her. Right? That, exactly. That's, that's the one and only example that was given of Ben Shapiro uh, in, in that article in the article for, was it from the New York Times yes the New York Times oh my yeah. god come on uh, <laughs> New York Times needs to pull itself together so um so what what kind of what are the arguments that you come across most often from these intellectual dark web people that what are like the the syllogisms that you come across most often that just totally break down yeah so that example that we were just talking about would be one of them that they will try to say that it, it follows from from biology, like from facts about chromosomes, that uh, gender identity diverging from the chromosomes doesn't exist or shouldn't be respected. And I think when you put it the way that I just did, uh, it's almost like, you know, you almost don't need to spell further spell out why that breaks down, right? You like, like, like it's it's um it's it's just so clearly a logical leap. Uh, although my my favorite way of putting it comes from um, uh, Sophie Grace Chappelle, who's a trans uh, philosophy professor uh, in the UK, I believe, who talks about adoptive parents and biological parents, and says, okay, so you know, if uh, clearly one internally consistent way of using the words parent, father, mother, etc., is one that's strictly biological, right? We would all like we all understand what those words mean in those sense. Uh, there are sentences where that's clearly what we're talking about. You know, the test has come back and you're not the father, that kind of thing. But we also have this other internally consistent way of using the word, which overlaps in, you know, the great majority of cases, but comes apart in other cases, which is who has the social or legal role of a parent. And you know, to like extend her analogy a little bit there, if somebody, you know, we could imagine some like school principal who is bigoted in some bizarre way who said parent-teacher conferences are are only open to, to parents. And I, and uh, and so uh, if you're, an, you know, an adoptive parent, you know, you, you're not welcome here. Uh, and I'm sorry if that offends you, but facts don't care about your feelings. Yes, because, uh, because parenthood is a biological reality. And I love how Contrapoints put this. She was like, "And if and if you're an adopted parent, you're just a glorified kidnapper." Yes, um, exactly. No, Contrapoints exactly. has a great <laughs> video about this. Yeah, and and so really, so basically, if I'm hearing you correctly, the argument that is often put forth is this: how is this reductionism? That yeah. is on its face absurd. I mean, you do not, when you determine that I am a guy, you don't do a DNA test. You don't uh, do a chromosome test. Like, that's not what you do. You don't check my chromosomes in order to call me a he. You call me he naturally. But as far as anyone could be concerned, I could be a trans person and you would never fucking know. And you, in an, in an ordinary interaction, would call me a he. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. No. Right. Of co which, of course, you know that that's that's what any like. Yes. Absolutely. And and the important thing here is well. Okay. One is this is something that you know we we're talking about the IDW instance of it. You know, like uh, you know that kind of Jordan Peterson, you know Ben Shapiro kind of argument against you know using people's preferred pronouns. But I think that the underlying mistake is like one that like libertarians make a lot, which is that like once you realize that there's 
you know, the fact that your preferred way of cutting up terms and concepts is one consistent way to do it. You then assume that it's the only consistent way to do it or that mm. anybody who doesn't do it is just inconsistently applying your way rather than taking seriously the possibility that there might just be another internally coherent view of the matter. And it's also a mistake about facts and values. So that when, um, that when you try to say, okay, here's this biological fact, therefore we should use language in a certain way, uh, that's a, a really important specific kind of logical leap that I talk about a lot in the book, which is, um, this is something that David Hume talks about, you know, it's this, the Scottish philosopher from the Enlightenment, which He's is my favorite. Uh, yeah, yeah, me too. Uh, and, you know, about how, well, actually, so uh, logicians sometimes refer to this as Hume's law, which is, says that you can't validly derive an ought conclusion from premises that just have is's in them, right? You need to have an ought somewhere in the premises. And I know putting it that way mm. is a really like abstract kind of dry way of putting it. And if you're hearing this for the, you know, like listeners who might be hearing this for the first time, you know, you might not be quite sure what I mean. But like, I think if, think about like a sort of typical argument against uh, abortion rights where you might, you know, you might say, you know, uh, a fetus is, is, you know, genetically human and and, and alive, right? Therefore, right, we, we shouldn't allow, you know, abortion. That is deriving an is, an ought from an is. Yeah, that's deriving yeah. an ought from an is. That's, that's saying, because you're making a factual claim, and then you're deriving uh, this, um, this claim about what's right or wrong, what's good or bad, what mm. we should or shouldn't do. Now, to do that, for it to even be a valid argument, of course, a valid argument doesn't necessarily mean it's sound, right? A valid argument is just a, an argument where the conclusion follows from the premise. But you can have an argument that's valid but not sound, meaning that the conclusion follows, but who cares because the premises aren't true. Right. And so And so in this particular instance, for that even to be a valid argument, you have to add some premise like anything that is genetically human and alive, you know, has a moral right to life, you know, something along those lines, right? You know, they, and, you know, then you have to fix it a little bit to make it syntactically fit together so it actually be valid, but mm -hmm. that's the basic idea. And of course, the, what, one of the things that realizing that there's this, there's this jump from um, this logical leap from uh, is to ought makes you realize is that usually these arguments, even though they're often unstated, the premise that's really doing all the work where the action is, is at that ought premise, that premise about that moral or you know normative premise, like in this case, anything that's human and biologically alive has a right to life. And that's really what we should be investigating, right? You Absolutely. Know, yeah. And so there are these unspoken cultural assumptions about what is normal, about what is natural, right? Yeah. And and that and those and so smuggling the premises in to the argument, uh unspoken premises into the argument. And and so it, it and so yeah. it's really just this facade. It's this like cover that doesn't actually get to the heart of the you know the assumption that that Shapiro is making in that statement absolutely you know absolutely right so like so like in the abortion case you could challenge that premise by saying well hold on you know what if scientists found a way to keep like a headless human body alive in a laboratory Right. right. Uh, that would be genetically human and alive. Would ending the experiment be murder? You know, I don't think so. Uh, you know, and for that matter, if somebody has lost all brain function, right, is euthanasia murder? You know, mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't say that either. And so, you know, that's, of course, something that people can disagree on. But at least at least once you figure out the premise that's doing all the work, you can have a, a meaningful disagreement about the core of the issue. And similarly, in the trans case, it's say, OK, well, you know, when you're making that jump from, you know, some people are chromosomally male or female. And of course, some people are intersex, which complicates it. But, you know, like even just sticking with that first part, right? Mm -hmm. uh, then, therefore, uh, we shouldn't, you know, we should we should use these, ter you know, these terms, man and woman, in exclusively biological ways. Uh, then what's the connecting premise, right? If it's something like, you know, any word that, that has a biological meaning should only be used in the biological sense, then the step, you know, then we're back to, uh, we're back to contrapoints is a point about right. adopting parents being glorified kidnappers. <laughs> right. The ought isn't getting off the ground. Yeah, and, exactly. and it's only getting off the ground by way of, you know, hyperbole and and force of 
personality. I mean, that's that's yeah. the fact that they can say it fast and compellingly, and just it's, it's, it's a gish exactly. gallop. I mean, they just throw throw at you so many different claims at once that it's overwhelming, and that's convincing to people. It's like yeah, it's 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 like uh, it's like a magic trick that the uh, that the magician yeah. is doing so much stuff, you know, that like you're looking at his you know at his mouth and not his hands, you know that they, mm. they, uh, that you know so much of what Ben Shapiro does is just about being loud and fast and sounding confident you know or letting that nasally voice just drive you to absolute insanity (laughs) jesus christ like he he makes me just want to cover my ears and shriek forever it's so miserable yeah that's the (laughs) correct reaction (laughs) uh So, so just out of curiosity, you, you said earlier um, something interesting about Sam Harris. You said that Harris, you know, sort of led you kind of out of theism, but then almost into the alt right. So, yeah. and, and you also mentioned earlier that you know there was a there's a point in your life where you're really into uh, conspiracies. Yeah. So, in in both cases, what brought you around? Uh, what brought me around? I think a lot of it had to. Yeah, you know, I've I've thought about this a lot actually because so I'm a I'm a Southerner. I'm I'm here in North Carolina, raised in an ultra conservative family by kind of these conspiracy theory conspiracy theorist parents, and I was not given great critical thinking skills. I think that I am also just someone who is very prone to fantasy. I'm I'm prone to miss. I have that personality quality that has a high sensitivity to patterns, and and so I'm I'm I can have mystical experiences really easily. You know, I can have kind of these altered states of consciousness and prayer or whatever really easily, and I can see patterns really easily even when they aren't there i just have that personality type and don't so, need expensive drugs for that oh yeah i don't i do not need drugs for it i i just trip on my own um i'm a yoga teacher so that's that so i i get high every day on meditation and yoga but um yeah and, and when i was a theist i would have these extraordinary you know mystical experiences and and so i have the personality type that is just prone to delusion in a uh, I think we're all prone to delusion, but but I think that I have the personality type that makes me a conspiracy theorist, that makes me prone to seeing patterns that aren't there. And then that combined with my upbringing, my conservative upbringing, with it was just a, a perfect storm. And so honestly, I think what what helped me was having the minority experience of being gay. That and and it clearly doesn't help everyone. Like like Milo Yiannopoulos, that minority experience was not a benefit to him, but it was to me. And I think because of my outlier experience, I there is that there is like that half second pause of not taking everything people said for granted. What really did it for me though was was leftist creators. I I think that that's what did it for me. I um. I think having the the outsider experience of being gay and realizing that my identity as a gay person meant that I had a different experience from other people and I need to have the same level of empathy towards other people. The sort of empathy that I want people to have towards me as a gay person, that's the sort of empathy that I want to have towards trans people, towards people of color, towards it was it was those I you know, those identity issues that made me realize that the right isn't right, that the right falls short, has a lack of empathy, has does not care to investigate other human experiences and that that i think was the underlying thing that helped me get out of it if i wasn't gay if i didn't have that minority experience i don't think i i think i would be an alt-right guy honestly okay but you could but you could certainly uh you certainly could have could have uh could have been a gay left-wing conspiracy theorist oh oh 100 (laughs) but but you know honestly it was creators you know i think that that provided the foundation for me but it was create it was other creators it was contrapoints it was a guy named science mike who does awesome awesome stuff uh awesome podcast he it was the liturgists it was you know a chapo trap house which appealed to like my my filthy you know sense of humor it was it was uh, it was uh michael brooks it was you know it was just all of it was this confluence of different creators that that helped me understand that i was wrong and that it was okay to admit that i was wrong yeah I think um, I think contrapoints has come up a couple times. 
I remember there was actually this Twitter thread where I think she um, she asked people who had been you know who had been basically turfs. Uh, well, okay, the, one of them was one of them was specifically for turfs. Yeah, uh, but I remember there was like an earlier one about people who'd like just generally been like convinced of things. Yeah, you know, by by her videos and and there were a lot, right? And and I find that very heartening because I mean both because I like contrapoints and also because you know like. I'm under no illusions that we're any of us are or could be or anything like that, you know, like purely, you know, rational beings, right? You know, people move on things to a very great extent because of experiences, absolutely, you know, of perspective, et cetera. No question about that, right? Like I, I, you know, I think, you know, what I'm pushing, you know, is like one tool that I think we should have, but it's only one, right? So but yeah, with all absolutely. That, you know, with all that said, uh, I do find it really hardening that uh, ContraPoint seems to convince so many people because so much of what she does really is just like pure kind of logic chopping philosophical argumentation. It is, right? it, you know, and, she, and wrapped in wrapped up in badass makeup and gorgeous yeah, yeah. lighting and, yeah, and yeah. hilarious comedy yeah no it, no i mean like yeah she, she's very funny she's bizarrely high production value for youtube yes. but like you know but like what the wrapping paper is all around is like you know she you know she's a philosophy grad school dropout you know and she's gonna give you her like 20 part argument you know exactly and, that's and precisely all, it all that other stuff like lures people in you know but like then like when they're there at a receptive frame of mind, uh, because of all everything you're talking about, right? Yeah. Then you know a lot of people do seem to be uh, do seem to be swayed by her arguments, you know, which um, you know which I find very comforting. Yeah. Because, you know, that's, that that shows that that can actually sometimes work. It does. It it really does. And so you know, you said something that I that was really really interesting to me, and and I wrote this. So so you said that one of the pitfalls that people fall into on the right is an assumption that when they then when they formulate a you know when they when they develop their own form of reasoning that that is the only valid form of reasoning that it is and, and they kind of have this this problem of decentralizing from from their own experience and and i really wonder how much and I see this. I see this in with in people on on the right. I see this in Peterson. I see this in Harris. I see this in Shapiro. There is this inability to decentralize, and it's almost like this chronic inability to have empathy. And I don't mean empathy in a in an yes, empathy in an emotional sense, but I mean more intellectual empathy, the ability yeah. to to step outside of of yourself see things from other people's and, and not take it for granted to not take your own experience for granted. And I especially see this in Sam Harris. Sam Harris just seems utterly incapable of of understanding how his his view of the world could be anything other than magisteri magisterial, beatific, the word of the Lord. You know, I well, yeah, such a calming voice. It <laughs> doesn't he though, um, but but you know you see what I'm saying and I and no, I, I realized I, I, totally yeah I mean look this is something I always um, so in uh, in my intro to philosophy classes I'll have people write like three short papers over the course of the semester like super short like 500 to like 800 words that kind of paper. Uh, where they basically just like state a thesis, make a quick argument for it, talk about an objection to the argument and respond to it. And the, the, the part of that that people struggle with the most is the objection because uh, what they're being asked to do, and I always tell them, I understand this is the hardest part, but this is why it's a useful stretch, is to uh, kind of step outside of your own perspective, right? You know, you're writing this. Yeah. You know, you're writing this paper, arguing for this thing because you think it's is obviously true, right? You know, and and think, okay, if somebody wasn't convinced, where would they get off the boat, right? You know, where would they say, oh, here's mm. here's you know, here's why I think you're wrong. You know, you're you know, here's the the wrong step, and actually not you know, not just some cheap straw man objection, but like to come up with like a real objection that has some weight to it, and then respond to that, right? Mm. And 
And I think that, you know, this is something, so an example that I see all the time is uh, like libertarian uh, property rights theory that like people, because it all fits together in a certain kind of way, and it's often, I think, such an epiphany for them, like when they decide that they agree with it, then they really do kind of forget that like just other moral and political perspectives exist that aren't just like inconsistent versions of theirs. Uh, so... It could be incredibly difficult sometimes when you're when you're arguing with those guys to like get them to like step aside, say like like even even like just to see to understand the objections that other people might make to it, right? Because they want right. to respond to everything from inside the framework, you know, that they say that uh, that you know, oh, what about this example? Where what you mean is what about this example that might make somebody question whether the whole framework was true, right? And they'll just sort of give the like, oh, this is what we would, this is what we would say, given the non-aggression principle or whatever about that case, you know, mm. it's like, yeah, I, I get that that's what you would say. But what I'm trying to get at is why I disagree with your whole thing, because what you have to say about that case strikes me as implausible. Right. So, um, you know, that, for example, you know, if uh, if somebody, you know, just to like just to pick. You know, just to pick, I think, a, a fairly straightforward example, you know, like people who are like super hardcore libertarians who think that like taxation is theft and everybody has a moral right to every penny in their bank mm -hmm. account, you know, and and you say, well, OK, I, I think I think that it's not theft, right, because theft means taking somebody th taking something from the person currently in possession of it. That you don't have a right to take. Right. right. That's why recovering stolen properties at theft and i believe that like when that 1.9 percent of um of your income is is taken away in medicare tax uh that i i think that the that uh the old people who need health care uh have a better claim on that 1.9 percent than you do right you know mm -hmm. that, that, that like that so in fact it is right to take it on their behalf and you kind of get these responses like, ah, so, so you're saying that like it's theft, but it's okay or no, I, I literally disagree it's with like, your whole thing. No, you know? I'm literally saying it isn't theft. Right. right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's that inability to decentralize and, and also just on an emotional, uh, like there's, yeah. there's that and there's this emotional level where, and I, I wrote about this in my piece with Sam Harris is I think what the alt-right did to me was that it preyed on assumptions that I didn't know I had. I did not know that I thought all feminists were were plain killjoy women on bicycles until <laughs> until the alt-right confirmed that suspicion. You know, I did not know that that was in me. I did not know that I was suspicious of trans people until the alt-right con confirmed that. And, you know, of course, it, it's like beneath the conscious level. I mean, I'm I'm a. I, I don't have the Southern accent, but I am very much a Southern guy. I was, I'm raised here in North Carolina, and it is impossible for me to live in this space without adopt, without ingesting some, some of that ambient prejudice. And, and so I, what I realized looking back is that the alt-right preyed on assumptions and, and emotional distastes that I had that I did not realize I had. And you know, as as a yoga teacher, there's always there's always that thing that that yoga teachers say, don't don't trust everything you think, don't trust everything you feel. And and I realized that if I took everything for granted that I think and feel, if I took my internal world for granted, the way I see a lot of other people on the right doing, if the way I see a lot of people on the right doing, if I did that, I would just assume that these biases within me were true. I would just assume, and if I didn't have that space, and if I didn't have the capacity for empathy, and really, you know, it's what I was saying earlier, that that being gay and thinking about my queer experience, that is what gave me that pause uh, to reconsider all of that and to reconsider those assumptions. And, and so I think the ability to decentralize, the ability to, to stop and say, okay, this feels like a really natural, real Thing, you know, conviction or whatever, but is it actually true? And and having the the strength and the humility to and the curiosity to question it, and I think that that is just so incredibly important. Um, 
Well, is there? I think this is a great note to end on. I feel like we can talk for hours and hours about this stuff. So if ever you want to come back on, just let me know. And maybe maybe next time we can go over some more specific arguments on the right. Uh, you know, bullshit Ben Shapiro or Jordan Peterson says, and we can we can break them down piece by piece. Uh, but do you have any do you have any final thoughts that you want to share before we head on out? Any uh. words of wisdom? <laughs> any is <laughs> if if the, if you're about to die if you're dying of cancer and you Ugh. need to give your last your last lecture what is your what is your 5 second last lecture <laughs> 30 second last lecture <laughs> wow <laughs> don't be uh, a white nationalist don't don't be an idiot yeah um Okay. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, so that's, you know, I, I, I think I, uh, I think I normally, you know, wouldn't, um, you know, if, if this were a, if this were a classroom, you know, lecture, I don't know that I normally impose my politics on people quite that way, but if I was dying of cancer, yeah, why not? You know, that's not a, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yes, white nationalism is bad. Try to reason more carefully. Really brave, uh, really brave of you. you know watch contrapoints read nathan robinson and for the sake of you know for the sake of my widow's upkeep uh please do buy the book absolutely every everyone go buy his book it's coming out may 31st and if uh do you have a website or do you have your own show or anything that that people can uh, find you at so i have um yeah, uh, no website, but you can uh, can follow me on Twitter. That's just at Ben Burgess, uh, B-U-R-G-I-S. Uh, and I have uh, YouTube videos that generally go up on the Zero Books YouTube channel every Monday. And on Tuesday nights, uh, I do a regular segment on the uh, post-game segment of the uh, Michael Brooks show, uh, The Debunk you know, where we, yeah. we, we take or take down part one of these arguments. So I can certainly, yeah, certainly see me on uh, those spaces. There's also, it's more occasional than this. It's like maybe once a month, uh, but but I've been also been doing like a regular, um, this series of videos with uh, Lance and Dave from the Surfs. So that's on mm. the Surfs YouTube channel, like Surfs, like medieval peasants. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, called Ask a Socialist. Uh, the first one was about Ben Shapiro. Uh, and the second one, which came out just before the... Uh, Peterson Zizek debate was about Jordan Peterson and uh, there's one coming up. Uh, I maybe by the time this comes out, uh, that's going to be about Sam Harris. Great. I can't wait. I will be checking all of that out and everyone needs to go find him. He's all over YouTube. Uh, <laughs> he is, he is, Ben Burgess is infesting all of the leftist corners of YouTube and do go buy his book. I will be buying it and reading it and maybe we can have you back on sometime to talk about it. Sounds great. Awesome. All right. Well, that is it for this show. As usual, the music is by the Jelly Rocks and Eleventy-Seven from the albums Bang and Whimper and Rad Science. You can find them on iTunes and Spotify or wherever you listen to music. Also, a special thanks goes out to my assistant, Justin Dozier Bryant. He is uh, my co-host on House of Heretics. He's the one who does all the graphics for the show. So if you like what you see on Twitter, that is all him. So go to his Twitter, go to his Instagram, give him some love, and go to my Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long, and give me money so that I can pay him more, as well as ensure that this show has a long future. With that, I will see you next week. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>